If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah chapter 29, it's going to be right there towards uh, the middle of your Bible. Uh, head to Psalms, take a right, and you'll get there soon enough. Isaiah chapter 29 is where we're going to start. Just hold your spot there, and uh, we're going to be looking at portions of Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 30 during our time together this morning. Well, I've been preaching for a while. I've uh, been in ministry for a while. I've been here at this church for a while. And there are times, you know, whether it's preaching here on this platform, as I've done for, for uh, numerous years, or in other churches around through the years, uh, there are times when you preach a message that you know the Lord has put on your heart. But in all honesty, you know what you want to say, but you don't know if you have what it takes to say it in the right way. You know, you know what you want to communicate, but you just don't feel like you know exactly the words to communicate what it is that God has put in your heart. And there are times where that happens for those who, who preach. And uh, today is one of those times. I mentioned that very thing in the nine o'clock service, and I still feel the same way here in this service as well. A message that I feel like the Lord is, has put in my heart, not just for us as a church family, but for myself as well. Uh, but yet, I, if God doesn't somehow bring it all to... Uh, bring it all into cohesion, it's, it's not going to be easy to preach. And so uh, I trust that God uses this time for good as he speaks into our lives. I have a quick question that I want to ask you before we begin to move into Scripture. The question is simply this, why exactly are you here? I don't mean why are you here in this world, we'll get to that in just a second, but why are you here today? What is it that compelled you this morning to get up, you know, in a nice day? I mean, last I was outside, it was sunny. I don't know if it still is now, but it's supposed to be pretty warm today. I mean, you could have gone out to eat this morning and probably found less of a crowd because it's a Sunday. You could have gone out in the boat. It would have been a little chilly to start with, I guess, but it would have been a nice day in the boat. You could be on the golf course. You could be doing a multitude of other things. You could have hit the road and traveled. You could be doing, you know, th- stuff on the computer. You could be handling some work issues. You could have been doing a lot of things. So what is it exactly, what is it that calls you to be here today? Maybe for some of you, it's a, it's a sense of routine. It's like, this is where I'm supposed to be. It's a Sunday morning, and I've been here for years, right? And so I get up, and I have my breakfast, and, you know, I, I, I surf the web, or I read the paper, and I get my morning news, and, you know, we let the dog out, and we do all of our daily routine, and then on Sunday, we, we, we come here, and we come to a Sunday school class, or we come to this service, and, you know, this is kind of what we do. It's, it's routine. You're here because it's your, your routine. Maybe for others, you're here because it's kind of a networking opportunity. You know, you run a business, or you, you have clients you have customers, and you know, this is a, a sizable church. We're certainly not the largest church around, but uh, we're a sizable church, and this is an opportunity to meet people and to maybe expand your client base, expand your customer base. Certainly not a good reason, you know, not the best reason to be here. Maybe for you, that's a reason. Maybe somebody told you, hey, if you go down there, you'll meet somebody cute, you'll meet somebody pretty, you know, and uh, you know, that's kind of why you're here. You heard there's a possibility, nothing else has worked out, so... You chose to come here, and uh, you didn't want to go to the alternative places where you could go to meet someone because it's just, you tried that, it didn't work, and so this is why you're here. Maybe for you, you're here out of guilt, you know? You're here because you, you feel like God is in heaven somehow keeping like this heavenly scorecard, and uh, if you miss, if you choose to do something other than church, then he's going to kind of count three marks against you, and you know, traffic's going to be horrible, and you're never going to hit a green light this week, and the kids aren't going to behave, and you know, the dog's going to get sick and have to go to the vet, and all this stuff. You kind of have this scorecard in your head, and you're here because you, you don't want to feel guilty. And so you're, you're, you're just here. You kind of fill your spot, and it's the same spot you feel on numerous occasions. And so, so you're here because of guilt. There are a variety of reasons why collectively in two service to, services today, everybody comes. Maybe for you, hopefully, there, there's a sense that you want to hear from God, that you want to engage the heart of God. You want to grow close to God. 
You want to hear what his word has to say in, into your life. So asking that first question, why are you here? So let's blow that out a little further. Why are you here then in this world? You know, if we take that question out a little bit further to the, to the margins, why are you here in this world? For some, you would say, I'm here to, to be able to enjoy life. You know, that's God's overarching goal for me. He wants me to be happy. He wants me to have fun. He wants me to pursue those things that are going to make my life most comfortable. He wants me to acquire. He wants me to accomplish. And so you've got all these list of things that you want to possess or that you want to accomplish uh, uh, in, in order to make your life what you hope it will be. Maybe for you, you feel like you're here to uh, j- just to kind of go through the motions. There's no real overarching purpose for you. You just kind of struggle one day through the next. And then there are others that are here because, again, you feel like in this world, because you, you know that God has a purpose for you. You know that God has a design for your life. You know that God is at work. He wants to accomplish something through you. And yet for every single one of us here, regardless of whether we've been here in this church or in a church for, for decades or whether we're just kind of brand new to this, whether, whether you've been a believer and a follower of Christ for, for many, many years or whether it's just been more recently, for every one of us, we understand that there are times in our lives where we begin to drift. We begin to drift away from God spiritually. We begin to drift towards a life on our terms rather than a life on his terms. We come to a place, if we're not careful as believers, where we begin to treat God as an accessory. You know, He's kind of like an add-on to our lives. And, and we try to squeeze him in whenever there are little cracks in our, in our daily routine. And, and, and we, we spend time with him only whenever that time is available if everything else has already been accomplished. We begin to treat God almost like a, not just an accessory, but we begin to treat him like a task, you know, like he's a a box that we have to check. Okay, I went to church. I was there from nine to noon. Check the box. My time with God is over for today. My time with God is over for this week. My time with God is over until I come back again. And and we begin to try to diminish God and fit him into a little box. And sometimes that box is church. Sometimes that box is doing good. Sometimes that box is something different, but we begin to treat God like a, like he's a task. No real desire to have an ongoing fellowship with him. No real desire to have an ongoing relationship with him. Sometimes he's an afterthought. As we chase our careers and as we raise our families and as we carry out our busy routine and our busy schedules, sometimes what we find is if we take a step back and if we only take inventory for a moment, we realize that God has become so familiar that it's become almost fatal. I've shared this story before when I was a kid, we had a pool table. And my dad bought this pool table from I have no idea where, and I didn't want to ask. But it was not a brand new pool table. My dad didn't buy a whole lot of brand new stuff. He, he liked the, uh, the repurposed stuff. And so let's just say it had fire marks on the pool table. So um, I didn't want to ask where he got it from. And so we had this pool table. And man, when we got this pool table, we were fired up excited. I was probably eight years old, nine years old. And I got really good at pool, by the way. But I, that's a conversation for another day, I guess. But we would play pool as a family, and we would have family tournaments. I have an older brother, two older sisters, my mom and dad they were like ruthless in their competitiveness my mom especially and so we'd have all these family tournaments right we'd have brackets and everything and we'd play each other my brothers-in-law that were part of it and uh and so we played pool all the time but as time moved forward and, and as more time passed there came a point to where it's not just that we played less it's that we played none and the room that housed the pool table, which was a converted garage, we didn't even go into it anymore. It became so familiar, and it was so accessible, and we knew that it was always there that we never even took advantage of it any longer to the point to where it was completely and totally neglected. 
And there's a point for us as believers, whether you sit on the back row, the front row, or whether you're on this platform, there is a point for every one of us as believers, if we're not careful, we begin to treat God exactly the same way, where he becomes so familiar, which is a good thing, but he becomes so familiar, it becomes easier to neglect him. We have this mindset, if we're not careful, that God is a God who is always here. So what's the big deal if I drift? God is always going to be here for me. So what's the big deal if I do whatever I want for this weekend? If I do what I want in my career? If I do whatever I want to ensure my happiness? He's always going to be here for me, right? That's what the Bible says. So what's wrong with a little bit of drift here and there? We have this mentality that isn't God a God who is quick to forgive? Isn't God a God who is a God of grace? Isn't it easier to ask for forgiveness than permission? And we begin to live our lives like that. Sometimes it's just for one specific decision. Sometimes it's for an extended season. And let me say, typically it doesn't end with just one decision to live life on our terms. The devil will take as much ground as he can possibly get. And that is a really good starting place. One simple decision that says, I'm doing this my way. Because after all, isn't God's grace amazing and abundant? And we begin to drift. We begin to drift far. And because he's so familiar, we begin to take him and treat him almost like a a good old buddy. Who whenever I come back, we'll just pick up where we left off never realizing that oftentimes life lived with that mentality brings a lot of wreckage between the dropping off and the coming back. We come to a place to where we don't really pray like we used to, where we don't hunger for his word the way we used to, to where time spent with this book open and a heart yielded before God is almost virtually non-existent. We're engaging him in worship happens rarely. And where we come to a place to where, honestly, we feel like we don't even really know him anymore. What I've just described, very possibly, is in significant proportions in this group, if not, if not absolute frightening proportions. In the book of Isaiah, God is addressing that very mentality in the lives of his people. Isaiah would be a prophet that would serve God faithfully for many, many years. He would be God's mouthpiece to a people whose ears had grown dull, whose heart had grown cold, and yet on the outside they were doing everything that they were supposed to. It would be Isaiah that God would use to stand before the people of Judah in a very crucial point in their lives. At this point in history, Israel and Judah were kind of a separated kingdom. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Both were God's chosen people. They were God's covenant people. Israel had begun to grow cold towards the Lord. They had begun to, uh, to, to dig into apostasy and they were abandoning God. And Judah wasn't very far behind. Looking about 750 years before Jesus would come, roughly, God would send the prophet Isaiah to speak into the hearts and the lives of the people of Judah. And we find here in chapter 29 that God captures a little bit of the mentality, a little bit of the heart condition of his people, the people of Judah, as they were wandering and drifting further and further and further from him. And so let's begin here in Isaiah chapter 29, beginning in verse 13. Isaiah writes and he says, Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, 
but they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. In other words, their heart is disengaged. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people. Wondrously marvelous. Now, I think the English translation of this maybe misses it just a bit. God is not saying, hey, because you've wandered from me, I'm going to bless you in really big ways. God is not saying that. He says, in a sense, I'm going to deal with you because of the condition of your heart and your refusal to come back to me. I'm going to deal with you, can we say, in epic proportions. He says, the wisdom of their wise men will perish. The discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. We find that here, what's going on in the people of Judah is that there is a mere outward allegiance to God. If you were to look at them on a Sunday, so to speak, let's say Sunday, let's say the Sabbath, maybe more precisely. If you were to look at them on their Sabbath, they would have been in the temple. They would have been moving through all of the routines because they were supposed to. They would have known all the prayers to pray. They would have known all the hoops to jump through. They would have understood the sacrificial system from A to Z. They would have known everything outwardly of what it meant to look like you were walking with God, and yet their outward allegiance betrayed the fact that on the inside their hearts were totally disengaged. Not only was there an outward expression that that didn't match the, the inward condition of their hearts, but they had begun using God for their own means. He was now a tool in their hands, not reverse, where they were instruments in the hands of the God who created them. Look at what it says in verse 16. They said, you turn things around, God says to the people of Judah. You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? In other words, when you've got a potter that brings his craftsmanship, his workmanship, his insight, his skill, his talent to the potter's wheel, and he crafts something of of great value, which is more important there, the value of the, of the, the, the pottery that was made or the, or the nature and the heart and the person who created it? God says, you've turned things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, he didn't make me. <laughs> yeah, I built this life. I am who I am because of myself. Or would it be that what is formed would say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. See, the people of Judah, Israel, or, or uh, Isaiah is pointing out, people of Judah were so far from God. And they were becoming blind to their need for, for, for the Lord. They were becoming insensitive to the voice of God, to the point that where their drift had taken them so far ultimately away from him. It's not unlike what often happens for us in our own lives. We check our boxes, we punch the clock, and we relegate God down to a task. We go through the motions on the outside. We know exactly how to teach a, uh, lead a Bible study class. We don't need God to show up. We can preach our sermons. Who needs God to show up? I've prepared this message myself. We can put together a great music set, and we can lead these kinds of things without God showing up. And though we would never say that, we've begun to embrace a mentality that says, God is here. I'll call him when I need him. I've got this until then. I can lead my family. I don't need extra insight. I don't need to be praying every day. I don't need to spend time in God's word every day. I know how to raise a family, we say. I know what it takes to build a career. I know what it takes to be a success in our lives. And we come to a place to where our our time in his word is non-existent. Our prayer life is anemic. As we pursue the things that we think are going to ultimately make us most successful and fill us the most, forgetting what it means to have a heart that pursues God with every ounce of who we are. The psalmist would say in Psalm 42 verse 1, he says, as the, as the deer pants for the water brooks, he would say, so my soul longs for you. 
It's almost as though like, like a dying man longs for his last breath, like a, uh, like a person who's ne- not eaten in weeks longs for just a taste of food. The psalmist says, that's the way my soul longs after God. And if we take a step back, we have to admit at times that that's not where our hearts are. Entwined with what the world desires for us, entwined with the things of the world, listening to the voices of people who have no heart for God whatsoever, following after the wind, chasing whatever is the next best idea that we may have, and all the while drifting further and further and further from God as we say one thing on the outside and then live a life so incredibly at times contradictory to everything we say we believe. And so God begins to address this. In the lives of the people of Judah, chapter 30, verse 1. He says, woe to the rebellious children. Again, these were children who were in church every single day, every single week. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but not mine. There's a historical context here, and I'll pause for just a moment. The historical context here is that the people of Judah at this point in history were under threat from the Assyrians. Now the Assyrians at this point on Isaiah's timeline were somewhat the world power. They would soon be replaced by the Babylonians. And at this point it would be Judah who was under threat from the Assyrians. And so to address this threat what they did was they began to strike an allegiance, a contract, so to speak, with the ruler of Egypt, with the people of Egypt. Striking this contract, this alliance, they felt would bring them safety as Assyria began to apply more and more pressure. So God says, woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, (laughs) but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me, and who take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt will be your humiliation. That's interesting language that God uses there because in Psalm 91.1, he would talk about how he would be the shelter how he would be the shadow that would hide us and protect us. And yet here for Judah, they are exchanging God for something of their own means. They are making their own decisions apart from the insight, from the input, from the leadership of God. You move forward to verse 9. He says, For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord. People who say to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. And if there's a passage in Scripture that captures kind of where we are, in a sense, in today's Christianity, not just the world, but in today's Christianity, it is largely this passage To where the people would say, we don't want to hear what the truth is. The truth is convicting. The truth is uncomfortable. The truth requires that we make adjustments in our lives. The truth requires that we put down our pursuits and exchange them for for a pursuit of you, O God. Don't tell us what the truth is. The truth rattles our cage. The truth makes us angry. The truth requires of us something 
that we're not willing to give. It requires surrender to you, God. So, so to the prophets, don't tell us the truth. Give us pleasant words. Tell us what we want to hear. Help us to feel good about the decisions we make as we run further and further and further from God, pursuing life on our own terms. Never for a moment realizing that when we live life apart from God, when we pursue our will above his will, there is always a cost that comes. Look at what it says in verse 12 and verse 13. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, since you have rejected this word and have put your trust in oppression and guile and have relied on them, therefore, God says, this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall a bulge in a high wall, whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant. You know, it's interesting, the analogy that Isaiah uses. He uses the analogy of a breach in a wall, a, a, a bulge. You know, it makes me think about, you know, when maybe for some of you, you, you made a, a New Year's resolution and, and, and you drug that bike out of the garage, right? You started riding that bike. I saw a guy, I guess, Two or three days into January, you know, he was really struggling on this bike going up over the bridge, you know, uh, onto Whitmarsh Island. And at first I thought, wow, that's a New Year's resolution in action right there. You could tell he hadn't done this in a while. And then I thought, well, who are you to speak, Mr. Fit Man, you know? And, uh, and so, uh, you know, I would have I never made it to the hill, much, <laughs> much less. And so, you know, maybe you drug that bike out of the garage, you know, and you notice that bike, you know, because of time, because of inattention, you know, there, there's now a, a bulge in that front tire, you know, a bulge that wasn't there when you bought it. You're not going to jump on that bike in that condition and go, you know, screaming down, you know, some hill somewhere. Why? Because you know it's not fit for that type of activity. You know that there's only a matter of time if the circumstances are just right where that tire is going to ultimately give way and you're going to suffer as a result of it. And what God is saying here to the people of Judah who have completely marginalized him, pushed him to the fringes of their lives, treated him like a task, treated him like an accessory, showing up and doing all the right things on the outside, but having a heart totally disengaged from God. God says, because of this, this is is like a, a breach in a wall. This is like a bulge that one day in a high wall, when you need that security and you need that safety, it's going to absolutely totally collapse. It's as though God is saying you are designed not to live life on your own terms. You're, lived, you're designed to live life in response to who I am, God says, in response to my lead. You're not the one in charge, God says to us. You're not the one who dictates when you walk closely with me. I am your life. And yet the people of God in Judah would have nothing, nothing to do with it. They were bankrupt. It's like the guy who got the call from his bank, right? He said, you're overdrawn. You have no money in your account and you're still spending. And his response is, how can I be overdrawn? I've still got checks in my checkbook. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. The people of Judah, like many still today, though they knew God, were on the very verge of bankruptcy. Verse 14, whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar, so ruthlessly shattered that even a sherd will not be found among its pieces, to take fire from a hearth or to scoop water from a cistern. So great will be the collapse of the life lived, disengaged from God, that using the analogy of a piece of pottery, there won't even be a piece big enough to scoop out water to give 
refreshment to a parched, dry mouth. Not even a piece big enough left to even clean out the fireplace. (laughs) So great will be the collapse of that life. Lived apart from God's lead. So we ask the question, so then how do we fix this? How do we fix this whenever we are doing everything rightly on the outside, but we know honestly that our hearts are disengaged from Him? You know, I feel like God brought this passage to mind and led us down this road for a reason, because there are times when all of us as Christians wake up and realize that we're not where we used to be with God in regards to our heart. Nobody else would ever know. There have been times in my quiet time when I'll sit down to do my quiet time and it will be a ritual. I know I'm supposed to. And in my mind, I would never confess this to God as though he doesn't already know my heart. My mentality, sadly, is we need to get this done because I've got other stuff to do. Did you know I work in a church? How many times have you thought to yourself, God, can we just get this over with because I've got life to live? Which begins to slowly gravitate towards, God, where are you? Because I really need you. So what do we do when we come to that place where we realize that our hearts aren't where they were? When we realize that it's not something that a quick little devotional can fix or that the right song will fix? What do we do? I'll tell you what we do. We begin to cry out to God to make our hearts sensitive to him. Like we've never done before. We begin to cry out to God to make us sensitive to the sin in our lives. So that we won't dabble with it one day absorbing the cost and the consequences rather but we begin to cry out to God to say God could you just show me that sin in my life so that I can push it away and run from it as fast as I can we begin to cry out to God to make our hearts sensitive to the needs of others to replace the apathy that we have towards other people we begin to cry out to God to bring conviction to our sin conviction to our apathy towards his word conviction of our apathy towards himself we begin to cry out to God to begin to lift the fog and to, and to do work in our lives again as he did before, to make our ears attentive to, to his voice, to make our hearts attentive to his lead. And we begin to cry out to God to give us hearts that are in love with him again, maybe like you once were. You know, in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, chapter 2 and 3 is an interesting section of Scripture because in those two chapters, the Lord is dealing with seven specific churches that were in existence in Asia Minor in the first century. And he has a message for each of those seven churches, one of which would be the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus had a lot going on on the outside that was right and that was good, and yet there was something going on on the inside that was badly lacking. It's like having that classic Corvette in your garage, and you begin to show it off because outwardly it's got the perfect paint job, and I mean, it's been restored, and it would draw uh, you know, thousands of dollars in the marketplace, and yet when you raise the hood, there's no engine there. Everything's superficial. Everything's on the outside. The purpose for which it was created is impossible. It doesn't even have an engine. <laughs> And that's where the church of Ephesus was in Revelation chapter 2. Take a look at this passage of Scripture and see if it doesn't reflect perhaps the heart of of you. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, and when when John writes here and he says to write to the angel of the church, more than likely it's not a literal angel. You know, the word angel, at least here in the Greek language, can also be translated as messenger. 
and more than likely this passage means that, uh, you know, to the, to the pastor, to the messenger of the church in Ephesus. And it doesn't mean that pastors are angels, right? I've got family in here today who can attest to that fact. And so, uh, so we say more likely to the pastor of the church, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? Here's the message from God to the church in Ephesus. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who, who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. Now, This is apocalyptic literature. We won't take time to explain what this is saying. Let's focus in on verse 2. He says to this church in Ephesus, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they're not and you found them to be false and you persevere you have perseverance and you've endured for my name's sake and you've not grown weary. God says all these things you've done well. I mean this is like the model church right? I mean, they're standing for truth. They're, they're exposing uh, 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 false uh, doctrine. They're, they're persevering. They're doing all the things right. But verse 4, God says, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You have left your first love. And the word left there is sometimes translated forsaken. Uh, I, I, I don't like that terminology there. I think the English Standard Version captures it better. It says that you have abandoned your first love. Some translations say you have forgotten. That doesn't hit it. It's not that we have forgotten our love for God. Sometimes we find ourselves abandoning it. The church at Ephesus didn't forget their love for God. They walked out on their love for God. It's a vastly different picture. You have left your first love. Look at what the remedy is now from the Lord to this church. He says, therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Remember what it was like when you were in love with me. Remember what it was like when you had passion for me. Remember when you pursued me like that, that, that deer longing for a drink of water. Remember what it was like when your heart desired to spend time with me, not to check the box, not to punch the clock. Remember when you served me and you went to church, not to network, not to meet friends, not to, to have a good time and feel good about yourself. Remember when you came because of me. And if there were only two people there, you would have been there first because you wanted to engage me in worship and engage me in my word. Remember from where you fall and repent, turn, and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place. In other words, you will lose your usefulness, not your salvation. You will lose your influence unless you repent. Going back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 30, to verse 15. Isaiah says, For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said in repentance and rest you'll be saved. And quietness and trust is your strength. And one of the most sad parts of any verse in Scripture. But you are not willing. What a picture of God Isaiah paints. Verse 18, therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice, and how blessed are all those who long for him. So why are you here? Sometimes in the busyness of life, We forget how much we need God. Sometimes even the most mature believers can have a time of dryness in their soul. And there are none of us that are immune to drift. There's a man named Gypsy Smith that you may not have heard of, but he was an evangelist for over 70 years. 
He served the Lord faithfully, impacted many say millions of lives in an era vastly different than today with our media. He was from England. He was born in a tent, uneducated, raised in gypsy camps. That's how he got his nickname, Gypsy Smith. He would travel over the Atlantic 45 times. And as I mentioned, he impacted lives far and wide with the message of the gospel. One day, a group of young preachers came to him and they asked him, how can we live a life of influence the way that you've lived your life to influence so many? How how can we live a life that makes the same kind of a difference as you've lived your life and had the difference that you've had? And his response was very, very interesting. He said, I want you to go home and I want you to lock yourself in your room and kneel down in the middle of that floor and take a piece of chalk and just draw a circle around yourself. There on your knees, I want you to pray fervently and I want you to pray brokenly that God would start a revival within that circle. Before we ever think about changing our nation, before we ever think about fixing our spouses, before we ever worry about how to get prayer back in the public schools, before we ever figure out how to get God back into the ongoing issues of our world, we draw a circle around ourselves. And we push everything else out. And we said, God, could you just start right here? And all over this room today, I believe that there are people who need to make a circle and say, God, I'm desperate for you. Or, Lord, I've not been desperate for you. But today there's a flicker, and would you just fan that into a flame? That my life might be used for you and you alone to know you like never before. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, man, I'm telling you, the greatest decision you'll ever make is to trade in your sin that one day will stand as testimony of your deservance of hell to trade that in for a Savior who's already paid your price to take over and be the God he longs to be in you. I'm going to ask Adam to come this morning and to begin to play softly. We're not going to stand for the invitation today. We're just going to be seated. But I want to ask you this morning, if you're willing, to, to just simply draw a circle around yourself where you are. You may want to slip out and come forward. You know, I've, I've not been, uh, hopefully, a pastor that is needed to see a lot of movement, right? To feel like my my ministry is being used of God. You know, some guys you'll hear them preach and they'll say, if you love your mama, raise your hand and come forward. You know, and everybody comes forward. We don't need that. But I will say this, that sometimes there is a real testimony to seeing lives yielded to Jesus. There is real testimony to seeing someone get up out of a seat and to come kneel down front and to say, Lord, would you just start working in me in this circle? You don't have to do that. God can engage you right where you sit. You don't, have to, you don't have to get up. You don't have to stand. You don't have to come forward. God didn't put all those hoops in place. I'm just saying sometimes there's real benefit. There's real benefit to showing outwardly. But you know what? I'm, I really want God to be God in me. And so as we go through our time of invitation with everyone seated, if you feel compelled to come forward, don't come for any other reason. But if you want to, you can. If you want to kneel at your seat, if you want to just sit and pray quietly, if you just want to sing along as Adam sings, you do whatever you feel like the Lord's leading you to do. 
And if you need to give your life to Jesus, hey, it's simply a prayer and a heart that's yielded to say, Lord, would you forgive and take over my life starting today? God, whatever you have in your design for these next couple of moments, I pray that your work would be done. And Lord, that we would just simply be responsive. Lord, if, if we live a life yielded to you, Lord, there'll be a day we'll look back and we'll be so glad we did. Much better to say I'm glad I did than I wish I had. But God, it often starts with a decision on a day like today. And so help us to plant our feet. Help us to draw the circle. Help us to invite you in and to live life no longer in charge, but that we would live our lives yielded to you as you as you take reign in us. And so God, whatever sin you're convicting, I pray that that person would be willing to lay it down and confess it and move forward in your grace. Whatever adjustments need to be made and whatever decisions we need to make, that we'd commit to make those today. And God, that we'd leave here yielded and surrendered. And for those who don't know you, that they'd yield their lives even today. So bless this time we ask. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.